All right. Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Let me open us in a word of prayer, and then if this is your first time for here for Theological Equipping Class, I'll let you know what we are doing. Let's pray. Father, we come to you through the Son and by the Spirit, and we just ask that you would bless this semester. We pray that we would learn a ton and that we wouldn't uh, just keep that as head knowledge, but rather it would inform us spiritually, that we might love you more. We might appreciate the fact that you love your church, and though your bride can be more or less pure, she's always your bride. And so we thank you for that. We pray as we look at our, in a sense, spiritual family tree over this semester that you will encourage us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, welcome to Theological Equipping Class. If this is your first time here, what we do, except in the months of July and December, is before the sermon, we go over theology and we study different theological topics. We might do the end times, or we might do ethics, or we might do whatever it may be. But uh, this year, we've been studying church history. Last semester, we spent a lot of time in the early church, the medieval church, and a little bit in the Reformation. And then today, we're going to be going still from the Reformation through the modern era this semester. And so these things are going to start to hit home a little bit more. We're going to talk about the black church in America at some point. We're going to talk about Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement. Uh, we're going to talk about, uh, you know, the church today. We're going to talk about postmodernism. So we've got a lot of fun things uh, coming down the pipe, pike, whatever the right one is. We have the fun things coming down that thing. So today we're going to talk about the Puritans. Now, I don't know what you know or think about the Puritans, but I'll give you my quick two cents on the Puritans, and then we will jump into the lesson. Growing up, you hear that the Puritans are like these mean, uh, no fun, stodgy, just anything that's joyful, they want to stomp out. That's what you hear growing up. And then if you actually study theology, especially if you come from a Reformed tradition, like we are here at Parkway with the Reformers and Reformed theology and Calvinism, then the Puritans are lifted up as kind of these heroes. They're the guys that take the theology of Calvin and push it to its most extreme limits. And so you start to realize these guys are holy, they love the sovereignty of God, they believe in the radical depravity of man and God's grace, and you realize these guys are heroes. My view is that the truth is somewhere in between those. On the one hand, I do think that the Puritans very much are theological heroes. Some of their writings are some of the richest theology that you can read. But on the other hand, again, they're broken, sinful men, and they have their own problems. So we're going to look at both of those things as we study the Puritans. Are you ready? Okay. You look tired. You look tired. I'm going to try to wake you up. Let's start off here. Who are the Puritans? They are a group of Protestants in England who sought to purify, oh, there it is, why do we call them Puritans? Sought to purify, Puritan, purify the Church of England, also called Anglicanism, by removing the elements of Anglican Christianity that they considered to be too Roman Catholic, okay? So if you think back to, I think, the last lesson that we had last semester, there was this guy, King Henry VIII. What did he do? What was it? Shout it out. Yes, he killed a bunch of his wives, right? He could only have one wife at a time. The church has always rejected polygamy, unless you're some part of cult or something. And his wife wouldn't provide him with a male heir, and he really wanted a male heir. And so he's like, I'm going to divorce her. But the Catholic church said, you can't divorce her. She's a Spanish princess, and Spain and the Pope are like this. And so that did not work. So he eventually just said, fine, I'll start my own church. We're part of the Church of England now. We can do what we want. And he just kept marrying different women and either beheading them or divorcing them or whatever it might be until he got a male heir who died pretty quickly in office. And then you had the reign of, you know, Elizabeth and Mary and these daughters that he had already had anyway. So that's the beginning of the Church of England. There's good theological things about the Church of England, but that's the beginning of it. The Church of England is really Catholic liturgy, Catholic practice, and Protestant theology, okay? So that's what's going on in England. But 
If you are someone who's studying the Bible, you say, I don't want a wea media. I don't want a middle road between Catholicism and Protestantism. I want full-blown Protestantism. So these guys in England are basically saying, England, I love you, but the problem is not me, it's you. We need to get rid of all these Catholic-y things in the Church of England so we can just have straight, pure, Bible, Orthodox, Reformed Protestantism. That's really what they want. And because they want to get rid of the Catholic elements, they are called Puritans. They want to purify. In their mind, they're purifying the church, right? Obviously, if you're Roman Catholic, they're dirtying it up. They're mucking it up. But they're wanting to purify it. That's why they are called the Puritans. Now, why is this important? Zach, why are we talking about Puritanism? This sounds so boring. Sounds like these guys would always have their shirts tucked in. This is going to be the kind of Christianity that is most going to influence America, okay? If you want to understand American Christianity, it is overwhelmingly Puritan in its beginning. You have to understand this to understand Christianity in America. And it's because the Puritans were the ones that came over uh, to America that America became very successful, that there were a lot of freedoms and there was a lot of Christianity and there was a lot of capitalism. As I've said before, you can't make America great again unless you make America Protestant again, okay? That's the key. So those are the Puritans. Now, what did the Puritans oppose in the Church of England? What did they think were, was too Roman Catholic? I'll give you a few things. There's more than this. Using crosses in churches. Uh-oh, look how Catholic we are. You see? They thought that was not okay, using crosses in churches. Certain priestly garments, right? So if you were in uh, Roman Catholicism or in Anglicanism, whoever's giving a sermon, somebody who's clergy, is typically wearing this like sweet, shiny silk robe, and they didn't like that, right? They wanted people to look like the laity. You'll notice up here that I don't wear a robe when I preach. Do you know why? Because I'm not a Jedi Knight, okay? We just wear common clothes like the people wear because that's what Jesus and the apostles are doing. Celebrating communion at an altar. Remember, in Roman Catholicism, this front part would be called an altar where you had the table where you could actually partake of communion because in Catholicism, they believe that you are literally re-sacrificing Jesus again. I've always found it ironic when a Baptist does something like an altar call. It's like, if you knew why you were calling it an altar, all your parents and stuff, grandparents, your ancestors would be turning in their graves. This is a stage this is a, it's not an altar though. There's no sacrifice being made up here when we partake of communion. They were against religious images, wealth and luxury. They were against bishops. Now, to be fair, there were some Puritans that had allowed an episcopacy, right? This uh, system and hierarchy of church officers and bishops, but most Puritans were against that. Celebrating Christmas or saints days, that was Catholic. Christmas is Christ's mass. It's the mass that you partake of when you partake of the Eucharist during mass on Christmas Eve. And so they thought that was too Catholic. So if you've ever said, can Christians celebrate Halloween? The Puritans are like, can Christians celebrate Christmas? Can they celebrate Saints Days? Can they do that? Or is that too Roman Catholic? Having godparents, right? Not like that guy, Marlon Brando, but you know what I mean. Other godparents. Kneeling during communion, they thought was wrong. Having an organ in church, Etc. Okay, so what they want to do is they want to purify the Church of England. Good so far? Let's do a little history. Where did the Puritans come from? They primarily arose during the reign of Elizabeth. If you remember the, uh, the fiery redhead, Elizabeth of England, who was a Protestant, who hoped that the Church of England would be a middle way, the fancy uh, Latin term is via media, between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. Whereas Anglicanism and an episcopacy united the country. The Puritans wanted a Presbyterian or congregational leadership which threatened the unity of England. So notice, what they're doing in wanting to purify the church is seen as an act of sedition. 
It's not just religion, it's also politics. Politics and religion often go together. You can't actually preach about one without mentioning the other because Jesus' commands have a say on what we do in society. And so at this point, when you just have the Church of England, think about how united the country is. It used to be illegal not to go to an Anglican service. So you have one nation, one language, one government, one religion. Everything's great. So then when the Puritans come and they say, no, this is too Catholic, it's not just a theological departure. They're also making a strong political statement. In 1593, an act was passed that allowed Puritans to be arrested if they didn't attend Anglican church services. So kind of the opposite of COVID, where you could be arrested for going to church. This was you would be arrested if you didn't go to church. After Elizabeth died, she was succeeded by James I, who was already king of Scotland. James needed the bishops of the Church of England to unify his country so religious groups that did not belong to that, that would include the Puritans, that would include Anabaptists, that would include Independents, received less toleration. So you start to see this growing persecution of Puritans and any group really that's not the Church of England going on in England at this time. In 1605, Due to English oppression of Catholics, a group of Catholics rented a space, listen to this story, below where the British Parliament met. There they put large wine barrels filled with gunpowder in an attempt to blow up the king and several Puritans who sat in Parliament. But the plot was discovered and the traitors executed. One such conspirator is named Guy Fox, and the mask, supposedly indicative of his face, has become a symbol for anti-government protest. Now if you look in your notes, do you see this kind of V for Vendetta mask here? This guy, this is what's called a Guy Fox mask. You'll often see this when somebody wants to protest the government or Anonymous will wear this online or Antifa will wear this and they're using it as a symbol of anti-government protest. Now, when I see that, I just think, man, that guy is really fired up about Catholicism because that's what the issue is. These are Catholics who don't like how Puritan and Protestant parliament is, so they want to blow them up. So anytime you see that mask, don't think rebellion, think Catholicism, okay? Think Catholicism. In 1606, anti-Puritan canons were adopted by the British government. Charles I, who reigned after James, pushed even harder to have Anglicanism be the primary denomination in England and Scotland. This only pushed Scottish Calvinists and English Puritans closer together. In 1620, okay, so let's not confuse our ships here. In 1492, who sailed the ocean blue? Columbus, used to be a hero, now he's a villain, but you know, he came over on the Nina, the Pinta, the Santa Maria, the little girl, the painted ship, and St. Mary, obviously very uh, Spanish, portuguese sounding names, and so they come over here. Now, in 1620, there's another famous ship that comes over, and it is the what? The Mayflower, okay? Now, so that's a very important thing. Now, you need to keep in mind, the Puritans are not the same thing as the Pilgrims. However, they have very similar theology. What is the main difference, Zach? Here's the main difference. The Puritans wanted to have a state church. They thought that they could purify the Church of England. The pilgrims, though, were separatist. They did not think that they could purify the Church of England. They wanted this to be a distinct thing. So their theology is very similar, but they're not the exact same groups. The main difference being whether or not they thought they could reform the church and have a state church, or they thought that they had to separate from, uh, from the, the church in so doing. In 1620, after being at sea for 66 days, the Mayflower landed in the New World. Of the original 102 people on board, half would die that first year. Total bummer, total bummer. Half would die in the first year. The pilgrims are not the same as the Puritans, we just talked about that. Eventually, 
the, col- uh, the colonies would become overwhelmingly Puritan and Calvinistic. So the pilgrims come first, the Puritans shortly after, and the Puritan and, and their theology will overwhelm the colonies in the new world. And here it is, ready? The pilgrims never had buckles on their hats. Doesn't that make you feel like everything you've ever learned is a lie? That's what it does. That's one of those statements that just shakes you to the core. You're like, am I, am I in a dream right now? That's the one thing I know about the pilgrims. They had buckles on their hats. That was a style that came around at another time, but they didn't have it. Now, here's something else that will make you feel like everything you've ever learned is a lie. What did they eat at the first Thanksgiving? (gasps) Let's take a look. At the first Thanksgiving, they ate deer, bass, cod, porridge, cornbread, wildfowl. So they might have had turkeys, okay? So that's a thumbs up. They're not taking the central piece of Thanksgiving away from us. Plums, grapes, onion, and shellfish. They drank beer, brandy, wine, and gin in the first Thanksgiving. Now, here's what they did not have. Let this, again, when you're sitting there eating Thanksgiving and you're wearing your hat with a buckle on it and you just feel all that shame, just remember this lesson. They did not eat pumpkin pie, cranberry sauce, stuffing, candied yams, or mashed potatoes. That's about the most un-American Thanksgiving I've ever heard of, okay? That was the first Thanksgiving there. In 1633... William Laud became the Archbishop of Canterbury. Within the Anglican Church, the Church of England, it's a hi- there's a hierarchy of church offices. So here at Parkway, you've got the elders, and then standing above us is obviously, you know, God and the Bible and these things, but there's not a church body that can tell us what to do. There's not like a church in Dallas that can call us and say, preach on this sermon or whatever it might be. We are independent. We are congregational. Within the Church of England, you have a hierarchy. You have people that have authority over multiple churches called bishops. And then above them, you have archbishops that are over them. And at the very top is a figurehead. He's not like the Pope, uh, but he is more of a figurehead, but it's the Archbishop of Canterbury. In 1633, William Laud became the Archbishop of Canterbury and persecuted the Puritans by both mutilation and by issuing death warrants. So you see how it's getting worse. You can be arrested for not going to church. There are canons passed against you. And now you can be mutilated, scarred, beaten, have a body part chopped off, or you can be killed. During the English Civil War, the English Civil War is between Charles I, the nobility, and some Irish Catholics versus Parliament and some Scottish citizens. The famous Westminster Assembly was called to advise Parliament on religious matters. It was made up of 121 ministers, 30 laymen, and eight representatives from Scotland. The Westminster Confession of Faith was completed in 1646. When you look across church history and you look at some of the most helpful statements of faith, some of the most helpful creeds and confessions, the Westminster Confession of Faith is incredible. It is extremely influential. It will, it will influence all Reformed groups. It will influence a lot of Protestantism, even outside of Reformed circles. It's not perfect. Obviously, I'm not Presbyterian. I don't baptize babies and such. But it is an excellent, excellent statement of faith and an excellent summary of doctrine. Oliver Cromwell, a Puritan who became Lord Protector of England. And by the way, what an awesome title to be called Lord Protector of anything. I, Walmart, I don't care, it's amazing. Lord Protector of Walmart, World Protector of England after Charles' defeat, helped enact laws protecting and supporting Puritanism. He had helped defeat his opponents with a group of Puritan cavalry known as the Ironsides. There's a picture right there, right? He's got someone tying a belt of cloth around him and he's got a sweet stick showing he's in charge. There he is, Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell. In England, the monarchy was reestablished in 1660, which ended the hope of reforming all of England under Puritan principles. Now, 
That's a quick history. That's the most tedious thing that we're gonna go over. The rest of the lesson's gonna be a lot more fun. Here's the idea though. So you have uh, the Church of England, which is Anglican, and this group wants to purify it. They wanna get it closer to the Bible, more Protestant, less Catholic, but when the monarchy eventually is reestablished, all that dies away. Today, the Church of England is still alive and well. In fact, Anglicanism, outside of charismatic groups, is the largest Protestant denomination in the world. Largest Protestant denomination in the US is Southern Baptist. Largest Protestant denomination, again, outside of charismatic groups, which are usually loosely affiliated, is Anglicanism. So it is alive and well. England never becomes fully Puritan. The country that will become Puritan is the US, okay? That's, again, why this is gonna be relevant for us. So, that's the history. Now let's get into the theology, are you ready? Let's go over what the Puritans believed and let's go over some good things about the Puritans and then I'll give you a list of some bad things about the Puritans. We've tried to be fair here as we've been doing church history. I gave you the good things about Luther, the bad things about Luther. Jeff gave you the good things about Calvin, the bad things about Calvin. We're gonna do the same thing with the Puritans. Let's first of all though talk about what they believed. Some of this will be good and some of it will be just neutral as I read it to you. Few, few things, some independent, congregational and Presbyterian Puritans believed that there could be a state church. Others, called separatists, thought that there should not be a state church. Keep that in mind. Again, the, uh, the, the groups of pilgrims and Puritans are different, but those, those Venn diagram circles do overlap in a few places. Listen to this next one. The Puritans believed that a high biblical education was super important. Harvard, Princeton, and Yale were all started to train Protestant ministers. The early settlers of Massachusetts included 100 graduates from Oxford and Cambridge. At this time, it was the most educated colony in the world, okay? So they love theology, they love philosophy, they love study, they love languages, they love study. It was really important to be well-educated if you were a Puritan. Uneducated ministers were despised and called dumb dogs. Remember that the next time you attend a church and the ministers there don't have a theological education, sit there and think, you dumb dog. If a, if a surgeon has to go to school for years and years to operate on the body, a minister should go to school for years and years to learn to operate on the soul. They also thought, and this might surprise you because we're gonna see in a second that the Puritans are super legalistic, but here's one place they're not legalistic at all. They thought that drinking was good. The Mayflower had more wine on board than water and the first Thanksgiving had beer, brandy, wine, and gin. Some tavern owners gained more standing than clergy. That hurts a little bit. You own a bar and you're higher up than Jeff or something. Puritans opened breweries in Massachusetts and used the funds to help clothe and educate children. They would have beer at meals and rum at weddings. This was in line with the Protestant tradition before them. Several key figures in the Protestant Reformation enjoyed alcohol. For example, Martin Luther's wife, Catherine, used to brew beer in their bathtub, gross. John Calvin's salary was paid in wine and John Knox said that drinking was a daily occurrence for him, quote, like eating bread, okay? So though they, what's interesting about legalism is you always find a way to make the issues that you're uncomfortable with where your legalism goes, but the things you're comfortable with or you grew up with, ah, that's fine, okay? I was talking to a lady once, a little side rant, and uh, she was upset that sometimes women have piercings in places other than their ears, maybe their nose or their lip or whatever. And so I asked her, uh, she said, I don't think women should be piercing their nose or whatever it might be. And I said, but, but what about you? you? You have piercings in your ears. And she goes, oh, ears are fine. 
And I said, why are ears fine but nose is not? In fact, nose piercing is in the Bible. When it's praising certain beautiful women, it will describe them as having a nose ring or whatever it is. The woman didn't see that the Bible didn't parse out what type of piercings were okay and not. She had just assumed something from her culture and then judged somebody else for something that the Bible also didn't condemn. And so we have a t- legalism has a tendency to do that. Listen to this next one. The Puritans believed in the importance of weekly worship. What was a service like if you were a Puritan? Sermons were two hours and prayer was one hour. You're welcome. As you get out of here and you get to go to lunch and you're not exhausted, you're welcome. Sermons were two hours and prayer was one hour. So services lasted a long time. Now listen to this. Failure to attend worship could land you in the stocks. You know what the stocks are? Where they put that piece of wood over your neck and your arms and your neck. You see it on like medieval movies or whatever. That could land you in the stocks. Now I like this right here. Sometimes during a church service, a man would walk around with a stick and a feather. If you fell asleep and you were younger, he would hit you with a stick to wake you up. If you were older, he's not gonna hit you with a stick. He's gotta show you respect, so he would tickle your chin with the feather and wake you up. Now, I've pushed to get a stick feather deacon here at Parkway. The elders keep voting it down. I don't know why, but I, I think it's very Puritan, you know? So next time your kid falls asleep in church, feel free to, uh, to bop them awake. The only acceptable job for a woman was to be a homemaker. Some names we have of women from the Massachusetts Bay Colony include the following. Patience, that's not a terrible name. That could be a normal name. Silence, can you imagine naming your daughter Silence? You know she'd be a talker if you did, you know. Fear, prudence, comfort, hope still, and my favorite, be fruitful. Come here, be fruitful. It's be fruitful's birthday party, everyone. Let's come to the house. These are some of their names. Notice that these are meant to be the wifely and motherly virtues of these women. These are some actual names that they uh, would name their kids if they were women. Women could only be homemakers. They were not really allowed to work outside of the home other than some minor selling jobs. They could weave, they could knit, they could do some other things, but uh, that, was the, uh, that was the standard for the Puritans. Now, the, importance, or the, uh, the Puritans also held to the importance of living all of life in conformity with the Scripture. Okay, now that's a good thing. You want to, the Puritans aren't just saying, what's my theology and it's detached from their life. Every aspect of their life, they've run through a biblical grid. They've used the Bible as like this sifter and they put all of the sand of life in there and they shake it out to see what they should really do, which is a good thing. However, they land on the wrong place, in my opinion, on this issue. Whereas Anglicans said that Christians can do anything that is not forbidden by scripture, The Puritans said that we should only do what is explicitly mentioned in Scripture. We've talked about this in theology, the difference between what's called the normative and the regulative principle. Can you do something only if it's mentioned in Scripture, or can you do something unless it's forbidden in Scripture? So we at Parkway hold that you can do things unless it's forbidden by Scripture, okay? So the the Puritans don't hold that. They, They want to find a verse for everything. So for them to be allowed to use medicine, they have to find a place in the Bible where medicine is used in a positive sense, and they do. They take a story of a prophet in the Old Testament where he applies this kind of balm stuff, and they say, look, we can use medicine. That's gonna be a difference, though. The Anglicans would say you can do anything unless it's forbidden. The Puritans would say you can only do it if you can proof text it. If you can find a verse that shows that you can do it, then you can. Hard work. This is another good thing about the Puritans. Work was a way to worship God and it was evidence that you were elect, okay? So this again is in contrast to Roman Catholicism. In Roman Catholicism, there's these two tiers of people. There's clergy who are close to God and they're doing important stuff and then there's laity. And what does the laity do? Gross menial tasks like farming and engineering and being a doctor. 
All that was seen as not very spiritual. That was just worldly and temporal. The uh, reformers destroyed that and said, nope, there is no distinction between clergy and laity. You know why? Because you guys are all priests if you're a Christian. You guys are all saints. There is no difference in your standing before God between you and Billy Graham. You're both equally in Christ. I have a different job than you, that's it. Different calling maybe, that's it. But there's not a difference as far as who's closer to God. If anything, I think most of you guys are closer to God than me because I'm kind of a terrible person, okay? And so what they realize though is that if there's no distinction, then all of life is worship. It's not just, you're not just worshiping when you read the Bible or when you pray. You're worshiping when you send emails, assuming that you send kind emails without expletives, right? You're worshiping when you fight traffic to go to your job. You're worshiping when you swing a hammer to to fix a roof. That all is worship to God. And so hard work, and one of the reasons the colonies in America took off was because of that Puritan work ethic. You've probably heard of a Protestant work ethic. This next one's kind of weird. It can be good or it can be bad, depending on how you use it. They had an absolute obsession with death and judgment, okay? Like all the time they're thinking about it. All the time. So here's how they would teach their kids the alphabet. So if you have a little kid and you're teaching them the alphabet, you probably have a little alphabet book, don't you? And you open it up to A and what's A say? Apple. They all start with apple, all right? No one said armadillo, right? It all starts with apple for some reason. And then B is, I don't know, balloon and C is cat or whatever. And you work, you use that to teach your kids these letters. Here is how the Puritans taught their kids the alphabet. They tried to attach biblical themes to each letter, and some of them, super terrifying. Let's look at a few. A, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. We'll just start off the alphabet with total depravity. When Adam sinned, you sinned, you're going to hell, that's where it starts, little kid. F, the idle fool is whipped at school. Well, this is not real cheery, right? Again, I'll take apple and balloon or whatever over this. G, listen to how morbid. As runs the glass, man's life, life doth pass. Okay? It's this memento mori, it's this reminder of death, this hourglass that you will die. T, time cuts down all, both great and small. Again, you're teaching this to a what? A two-year-old or whatever it is? X, Xerxes the great did die and so must you and I. That one feels like a stretch. You could have just said something about Xerxes, but you're like, what's the important thing to know about Xerxes? Oh, more death, right? Why? Youth forward slips, death soonest nips, right? So instead of having apple and like this kind of stuff that we would have, you'd get to G and it's like G, grim reaper, right? And you just keep going. That's what's going on as they're teaching the kids the alphabet. Now, again, is it good or bad? It's a little bit of both. On the one hand, there is something righteous about considering your mortality, that you will die, you will stand before God in judgment. There's something right about, in a non-scary, morbid way, teaching your kids about death, that eventually we will all die and we must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But there's also a way where you can push it a little too far and it's a little bit Halloween-ish all the time. And that's kind of sometimes what would happen. I put an image there of uh, a printing of part of the uh, Puritan alphabet. Covenant. Okay, they were very big on covenant. Now, not only were they covenantal in their general theology, but they made each other sign a written church covenant to live together in Christian society and harmony. To be a full member of the church, you had to give testimony of a credible conversion experience. This was also required for you to be able to vote as a freeman in the colonies. Your church membership and political involvement were linked. At this time, you had what was called the halfway covenant. If you were baptized and practiced good behavior, your children could be baptized. 
but neither you nor they could take communion and be full members of the church unless a credible profession of faith was given. So the Puritans are great with theology. They're totally wrong with the infant baptism covenant thing. They don't understand one of the differences of the new covenant is that God's people are believers. That was not necessarily the case in the old covenant. You could be generally in covenant with God even if you never came to faith because you were part of Israel. There's this covenant with the nation of Israel. The new covenant's not like that. In the new covenant, you must be regenerated. You must have the spirit. Because they mess up on that, they run into a bunch of issues. They say, okay, well, what about somebody who's been baptized as an infant? They're somehow in covenant with God, but they haven't been converted. They're not regenerate. They don't know Christ. What do we do with them? Well, we'll let them be half members of the church. That's their decision, okay? That you can have different levels of membership in the church. You've got the platinum tier, you're saved. But below that, you know, you get like the, the silver and the bronze and the wood or something. And that's what you get if you, you know, you're in covenant with God, but you're still opposed to Christ and he wouldn't call you his own. And so you're not really in covenant with God. So you get this weird halfway covenant idea. Additionally, though, notice that you had to be a full member, a full covenant member of a church to partake in politics. We have a tendency to think that the separation of church and state, which by the way, that phrase doesn't ever occur in the Constitution. We have a tendency to think that means you can't pray in schools or something like that. Uh, that's not the case. Okay? That uh, in the early on, there was very much this idea that your church life and society was linked even after 1776. In many states, you had to be a member of a church before you could partake of political office. That eventually changed, obviously, but that's how it started. Another very good thing about the Puritans, Calvinism. The Puritans were rigorously Calvinistic and promoted a high view of salvation by grace and the sovereignty of God. This is why so many Protestants think of the Puritans as heroes because they're excellent when it comes to salvation. They're excellent when it comes to the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign over everything. I don't mean generally. I mean every molecule that sloshes around in the ocean is directly held together and controlled by God all the time. Your heart beats right now because God tells it to. God keeps you existing right now because he's God. If he should turn away his face, there would nothing would be. Everything would cease to exist. He is that sovereign, which means he's also that sovereign over who he saves. You did not choose Jesus. You would never choose Jesus. Jesus chose you. Sure, you choose him back, but the work's already done at that point. God's already given you the spirit. He's already done the regenerating. And so they had a high view of Calvinism. For more info on that, we have lessons on Reformed theology and Calvinism online. Holiness. Every waking hour was spent trying to be pure. This led many to despair and a lack of assurance of salvation. Again, it's one of those things, you ever heard the phrase that your greatest strength is sometimes your greatest weakness, okay? I get paid to talk for a living, but guess what gets me in trouble a lot? My mouth, okay? The Bible even tells me that. Watch out, your mouth will get you in trouble. And I'm like, this is the truest verse in the Bible, okay? I do not say the things that I should say. It's the same thing's true with the Puritans. On the one hand, they desire to be holy, which is a good thing. But if you pursue it the wrong way, if you pursue it by you trying to grow in holiness instead of just looking at Christ, you end up just becoming scared and lacking assurance of salvation and becoming legalistic. Now, what were some bad things about the Puritans? This is what's gonna be super fun. You ready to see how weird they were? Okay, that didn't sound very, you guys are sounding very Puritan in church right now. They would have hated that we told jokes in church. Here's what they thought was improper. So they are hopelessly legalistic. Okay, hopelessly legalistic. Let me give you a few things they thought were improper. Number one, to attend the theater. They would not allow you to watch movies today if you wanted to watch a movie. The Puritans were completely against it for two reasons. One, it depicted immorality sometimes, but immorality for them is not like what it is today with shows. And two, some of them thought that it was a form of lying. 
Doesn't that just feel like they're looking for a reason where you can't go to the theater? You're like, mom, I'm gonna go to the theater. And they're like, by acting, they're lying, right? So that was one of the things that you were not allowed to do was to go to the theater. To play cricket on Christmas. You could get in trouble for that. So Christmas, you shouldn't celebrate at all. That's a Catholic holiday. But if it's still Christmas, you can't play cricket, okay? Keep that in mind. Some men were once fined in New England for playing cricket on Christmas. Listen to this one. To hug or cuddle your own children in public. One man was even thrown into the stocks for kissing his wife in public. You could not give your kid a hug. You could not cuddle. If they're cuddled against you right now, you could get in trouble. You could be fined for that under the Puritans. To have secular hobbies or pastimes was generally thought to be unholy. That time should be spent studying the Bible. Now, there were a few exceptions. Singing and some games, such as swimming, never men and women together, archery and bowling were allowed as long as it was not in a tavern or on a Sunday, okay? Now, James 1, James 1, James I of England had written a book, this book of sports, and it allowed, it explained what sports you could do on a Sabbath. On a Sunday, what sports could you do? And the Puritans hated his book of sports because they thought you could not do anything physical like that on a Sunday. They thought it was sin to not keep the Sabbath. Obviously, they're strong Sabbatarians. They thought it was wrong to participate in horse races. They thought it was wrong to use any type of contraception. Now, let me clarify here. Most Christians would agree, and you should agree, Christians cannot use abortive types of contraception. If sperm meets egg, you don't get to mess with that after that's happened. But a lot of Christians would allow that you can use other forms of contraception that keeps sperm from meeting egg, not the Puritans. They thought all forms of contraception, period, were sinful. Bundling, they thought was sinful. Let's talk about bundling. This is fascinating. Bundling, what would you do if you were a young man, let's call you Jedediah, and you fell in love with a woman, Elizabeth, in the colonies? Well, you couldn't take her to the theater, obviously, right? You couldn't just uh, go out somewhere alone. That would be improper. So what they would do a lot of times so that you could have an intimate connection with your beloved without having a sexual connection with them is they would do what is called bundling. They would put a board between you and your beloved, and then they would take sheets and blankets and sew them in around you. So you're like up close face to face and you're able to talk, but you're not able to be handsy or anything. That was called bundling. There's a great scene, you ever seen the movie The Patriot with Mel Gibson? There's a great scene in that movie where there's bundling happening and the dad's uncomfortable and the mom says to the dad, don't worry, honey, I'm a much better sewer than my mother was. (laughs) It's a great line. It's a great line, okay? But the Puritans were like, no! You don't get a, you just put some stuff between you and then tie you together. So they were against bundling, although it was a common practice in the colonies. The Puritans also thought it was improper to enjoy many types of art. You could have some paintings, never a statue, you could have some paintings in your homes, but nothing in church, okay? That was too Catholic for them. <clears throat> they thought it was wrong to have any tattoos, to dance expressively even at your wedding, okay? So uh, a lot of the reformers and stuff had been against dancing. Calvin outlawed dancing in Geneva. Uh, The Puritans, some of them would allow some types of dancing, dancing if it was proper, but anything that was too expressive or too worldly, they would condemn as sinful dancing and they would not allow that. They thought it was improper to laugh on a Sunday. Again, they would hate it here at Parkway. We intentionally tell jokes. Do you know why? Because God is a God of joy. We're trying to get you to stop taking yourself so seriously and take grace seriously. That's why we make fun of stuff. 
One, it does help you keep your attention so you can hear the good theology. But we also do it because we want you to come to church and think, people are happy here. Why? Because we have a great savior. But the Puritans, to laugh on a Sunday was improper. In addition to thinking it was wrong to celebrate Christmas, as I've already mentioned, they thought it was wrong to celebrate Easter. To wear elaborate jewelry, they thought was wrong. Okay, so what did you do? Again, you're Jedediah, and after all these bundling sessions that your parents condemn, you decide finally that you want to marry your beloved Elizabeth. You wouldn't propose with this big diamond. That would be way too worldly. Doesn't the Bible say that in church women shouldn't have braided hair and jewelry and all these kind of things? Instead, you would propose with a thimble as a symbol of her wifely homemaking duties, okay? Like Beyonce sings, if you like that, you should put a thimble on it, right? So that's what you would do. You would, you would give her a thimble and that would be the way that you would propose. Now what some of the Puritan women did is they took that thimble and they went home and they ground it down and made a ring out of it, okay? So, uh, you know, the Puritans do their best, but uh, human nature will prevail. They thought it was wrong to use musical instruments or choirs in church because, again, they thought that was too Roman Catholic. They sang a cappella and in unison. So we see some problems here with their legalism. There's a uh, famous uh, uh, journalist who once said, Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy, okay? There's an element of truth to that. I've actually put a funny little meme here where you see the Puritans all together now. If you're happy and you know it, that's a sin, like that, right? So now... Over time, many of the Puritans' children would not hold the same views as their parents, okay? Now listen to what I'm about to say because this is profound. Legalism always leads to more sin, not less. We see somebody that's tempted to go into sin, so we wanna just give them more rules. We wanna give them more legalism. Well, that just makes their sinful nature want to rebel more against those rules. God's law crushes you, you cannot keep it. So then you either say, forget it, I'll just go to hell then and I'll just party on my way out, or you try to keep God's law, and you feel like he hates you all the time because you're always breaking it. Legalism is worse than licentiousness. It is the big killer in Christianity. Go read our blog on why legalism is worse than licentiousness. The same thing happens with the Puritans, whereas the Puritans, the first generation is gonna be very pious. Their kids are not gonna follow in that same stream. Some Puritan children, we have at least one record of this, maybe more. Some Puritan children kidnapped by Native Americans preferred living with the Native Americans to the legalism of the Puritans. So one little girl was kidnapped, and then had the chance to go back to her parents. And she's like, no, I'm staying with the Native Americans. It's way easier over here. What you guys are doing is worse than being kidnapped. (laughs) Other problems with the Puritans, they were not tolerant of other types of true Christianity, okay? Now, it's one thing to be intolerant towards cults or false Christianity. You can do that. Be intolerant towards what is evil. The Bible actually commands you to hate what is evil. I love it when the Bible tells you to hate stuff. Hate what is evil. The Puritans, though, won't accept other types of Christianity, right? That's true Christianity, that's orthodox. This would include Anglicanism, this would include some Roman Catholics, this would include Quakers, etc. In fact, they imposed fines on Baptists and they executed four Quakers for their religious views. They were also, another negative, way too eager to accept false accusations of impiety and were even a little superstitious. A great example of this is the famous Salem witch trials where 19 people who were accused of witchcraft Die. There we see the witch and the sun shining through right there, the person lying on the ground. According to the Boston Globe, all 19 who were executed through a hanging died at Proctor's Ledge. Five others died in jail and one was crushed to death. We don't have time to go into the Salem witch trials. They are very fascinating. Uh, But you can see how 
the desire for piety can sometimes take a weird turn and all of a sudden you're, you know, executing women like in uh, Monty Python, does she float, all that kind of stuff with a witch. Some Puritans, this is not the majority, but some Puritans even believed in elves, fairies, and magic, okay? Again, you, you can be a little bit too weirdly religious where when you're walking through the woods, you're just expecting a demon to jump out and grab you, right? Because that's what demons do. They just hide in the woods. They have nothing else to do, and they just attack you when you're walking for your, uh, you know, your evening stroll. There was even a belief that one's children would be born on the day of the week they were conceived. Okay, let me tell you this. This is an interesting thing. Now, Jonathan Edwards is not a Puritan. A lot of Christians misunderstand that. He comes after the Puritans, okay? He's not a Puritan, but he's within the religious tradition of the Puritans. And so there was this idea that uh, if you conceived your child on a Tuesday, they'd be born on a Tuesday. That was the idea. Jonathan Edwards, though, had most of his kids born on a Sunday, which led people to question his Sabbath keeping, you see. Morbid introspection leading to self-condemnation and a lack of spiritual assurance, okay? That's the problem. When your whole life is spent not just looking at Christ and his grace, but trying to be holier, you keep looking down. Grace, you're looking up. Sometimes with sanctification, we end up looking down. And what happens is as we're looking at ourselves, this is ugly. We see the places we fail. We see the places that we sin. And that leads not to assurance. It leads to despair, It's interesting because the Puritans have a very high view of assurance of salvation when they're talking about it in the abstract, but if you read their writings in their daily lives, they are really obsessed with whether or not they're saved. Some of them don't quite have the assurance that one would assume. And then number five, their desire to have a Christian nation, listen to this, led to inevitable infighting. If you want to enact God's laws in society, what are you going to do when Christians disagree on how to interpret God's laws? Let me ask you a little question. Would you rather have complete freedom of religion in a nation where you can do whatever you want? Or would you rather have the nation mandate Christian principles? Let's take a vote. If you'd prefer freedom of religion, raise your hand. If you'd prefer the country uh, mandate Christian principles, raise your hand. This is not a crazy idea. This is what most people have done throughout church history. Okay, nobody. You don't think it would be good to make laws against adultery? You don't think it would be good to make laws against abortion? You don't think it'd be good to make laws against pornography? You wanna change your vote? You see, there's a problem. Neither system works perfectly. When you have freedom of religion, which is a good thing, people are gonna use it in a wicked way and society's not gonna have Christian principles. But if you impose Christianity, right, if you mix uh, Bible and state together, then you get the Middle Ages. So what's tough is part of me wants to say, I wish we had a Christian nation. I wish we would just open the Bible and use biblical principles and a a vote in the laws in America to where America's laws were Christian principles. Here's the problem with that. You ready? Which Christian gets to interpret those laws in the Bible that you're going to make civil laws? So if a Presbyterian is in charge, well, now he can make it illegal for you to not baptize your kid. Illegal. If a Baptist is in charge, now he'll make it illegal for you to baptize your infant, right? And so there is no just Christianity and state mixed together. You always have to ask which Christianity will get to control it. So if you really like the idea of state and church mixed, remember that was called the medieval Catholic church. We already had that and it wasn't great. So it's difficult. Neither system is perfect. But one of the things the Puritans are going to start doing, though they start off with a total theocracy, where their society is run by God's laws, you'll start to see over time that they're gonna actually start to push more freedom of religion. And the reason that will happen is because they realize it's leading to a lot of fighting. 
It's leading to a lot of infighting. It's leading to a lot of problems. And you'll see this also in the early history of America. Certain states will become more one religion than another, right? So though New England is primarily Puritan, you'll have different types of people that spring off of that, Congregationalists, for example. Uh, Rhode Island will be Baptist, and they'll name one of their major cities Providence, after the providence of God. Some states will be very Catholic. You ever heard of a place called Maryland? That's who it's named after. Maryland is named after me. It was a very Catholic colony. And so you have these different kind of things that happen. Pennsylvania will also be very Catholic, et cetera. Uh, And so uh, you see how religion is directly impacting society, civil law, et cetera. Let's end by looking at some famous Puritans, and then we'll have some time for some Q&A. For some of these guys you probably have heard of, John Milton, 1608 through 1674. He's the author of Paradise Lost. What is Paradise Lost? It's a theological treatise written as an epic poem in verse form. If you've never read Paradise Lost, it is a difficult read, okay? It is not something that is easy, but it is brilliant. I mean, it really is an incredible literary masterpiece, especially from a Christian worldview. John Bunyan, a bunch of Johns, by the way. I don't know why. Just with the Puritans, there's there's just a bunch of Johns. They just, it's like they have no other name. They're like, what a John, it's easy. Right? It doesn't matter what, like, Ioannis or Johannes. It doesn't matter what derivative they have. They all name their kids John for some reason. John Bunyan, 1628 through 1688, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, which is an allegorical journey symbolizing the Christian life. Not, in my opinion, as brilliant as Paradise Lost, but a lot of Christians have found it to be very encouraging. What he's going to do is he's going to explain what it's like to go through the Christian life by using the story, and uh, many Christians have found it encouraging and helpful. The... SEAL Team 6 leader, Jedi master of Puritanism, John Owen, okay? John Owen, 1616 through 1683. He was advisor to Oliver Cromwell, which is awesome, and vice chancellor of the University of Oxford. He's the author of several books, including The Death of Death and The Death of Christ and The Mortification of Sin in addition to others. He is a fervent defender of limited atonement. By the way, if you really like John Owen, chat with Jeff Ashley. Uh, Ash- Jeff did his uh, thesis on uh, John Owen at DTS, and so if you like John Owen, he can give you some helpful, uh, helpful resources. Now, John Owen, though he's the most famous Puritan, would have a student that is way more famous than he was. Does anybody know who it was? It's a guy named John Locke. I don't know if you ever heard uh, the name John Locke. John Locke studied under Owen at uh, Oxford. Next week, uh, I'm going to be talking about the Enlightenment, and we'll be talking about John Locke a little bit there. Richard Baxter, 1516 through 1591, author of The Reformed Pastor, which is a work on reform ministry. A lot of seminaries still require pastoral ministry majors to uh, read uh, Baxter's book on The Reformed Pastor. William Ames. 1576 through 1633, a theologian whose textbook, The Morrow of Theology, was used at Harvard for its first 50 years to to originally get into Harvard. By the way, Harvard's motto was Veritas Christo et Ecclesiae, okay? Uh, Truth for Christ and his church. Today, they've dropped all the religious stuff and it's just Veritas, right? It's just truth. But originally, it was started to train Protestant ministers and you had to already know Greek, Hebrew, and Latin before you could even apply, Richard Sibbs, 1577 through 1635. He was an Anglican Puritan. Hmm, a contradiction? Maybe, and author of The Bruised Reed, a work on pastoral care. Uh, Mark Dever, if you know who that is, has done a lot of uh, extensive graduate work on Sibbs. Notable Puritan preachers include William Perkins, John Preston, John Cotton, 
Thomas Shepard, John Davenport, and Thomas Hooker. And you might have heard of these other names if you think back to history class when you're in elementary school. And notable state governors include John Winthrop and William Bradford. So that's the Puritans. Are they heroes? Yes, okay? Their theology is excellent. They have a strong work ethic. They have a high biblical education. Their society is very holy. Do they have their problems? Yes, because they're sinners. There's only one hero in church history, and it's Jesus. All the other heroes are kind of sometimes heroes and sometimes like anti-heroes, right? They're sometimes good guys and sometimes bad guys. And so we need to keep that in mind. You should not despise or hate the Puritans, but neither should you read them uncritically. Rather, I would encourage you to read them. I would encourage you to take most of what they say. I mean, probably 90% of what they say in their works is excellent. But that other 10% and how they practically live their lives with the overwhelming, crushing legalism it's like if, if you could give one word for Puritan Christianity, it's this, strive with all your effort. Now, there's a way to do that biblically. The Bible will tell you that, right? To strive for holiness, without which none will see the Lord. But they go about it a different way. The way that the Christian strives, ironically, is through resting. The way that the Christian strives is ironically through giving that striving to Jesus, not by just trying harder and gritting their teeth and you know, curling their knuckles more. So those are the Puritans. Let me pray for us and then we will do a little Q&A. Almighty God, we thank you for the Puritans, most of whom did love you, most of whom cared very much for you and for your word. We pray that we would learn helpful things from them where they're right and that you would protect us from falling into some of the same pitfalls and legalisms that they fell into. We ask that you would be with us, that you'd help us as we begin again this new semester in church history, that it would be not only fascinating, but it would also affect us spiritually. We love you and thank you. It's in Christ's name, amen.